Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Betsy Greenleaf is a pelvic health expert and the first board-certified female urogynecologist in the United States, and certainly the first and only urogynecologist we have ever had on this show. So you are in for a fascinating conversation today. Betsy, welcome. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm so excited to be here with you and to be talking with you. So you have such an interesting background. You are a pelvic floor expert and a urogynecologist. So can you explain what urogynecology is for those who are unfamiliar, which I'm guessing is most people? You know, it's funny. When I was doing my gynecology rotations as a resident and I came home and told my mom, I'm going to do two more years of training. And in urogynecology, she thought it was like some kind of fancy gynecology, like, like Euro Disney, where like Euro actually means like urology, like having to do with the bladder and the urinary tract, as opposed to like European, like a fancy version of gynecology. So yeah, urogynecology is a pretty new specialty. There's only about 1,500 urogynecologists in the country, and it just became a board-certified specialty in the around 2014. So I was actually lucky to become the first board-certified female urogyne in the country. And we deal with mostly with women's issues, pelvic floor, incontinence, bladder issues, and then the regular gynecology also. Got it. Well, congratulations on being the first woman. That's kind of awesome. Yeah, thank you. So you mentioned pelvic floor. You're also a pelvic floor expert. Why should we focus on our pelvic floor health? You know, no matter how old we are and also no matter what gender, let's just talk about the health of our pelvic floor and why it's so critical. You know, the biggest thing is we start at the age of 30, we start losing muscle mass very rapidly almost 30% every year. And everybody thinks about working out their body, but nobody really thinks about their pelvic floor. And so the pelvic floor is all the muscles and nerves and and organs that make up our, our lower abdomen. And we have muscles that are there that help us to hold in our urine, help hold in gas, help hold in stool. And so as we age, if we're not dealing with those muscles, it's going to become more and more difficult to hold in urine, stool, gas, and that can be, you know, socially embarrassing. So this is an area that we have to, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it type of thing. It definitely applies to the pelvic floor. So there's a lot to unpack there. So (laughs) what, what are the signs you mentioned, you know, gas unable to, to hold? Uh, (laughs) what are the, what are the other signs of a weak pelvic floor and how do you know the difference between uh, a healthy pelvic floor, a weak pelvic floor, and then flat out dysfunction? You know, it may show up just simply as having more and more difficulty for both men and women holding in their urine, where all of a sudden you may get the urge to go and it's really difficult to hold it in. You're like running to get to the bathroom. So urinary incontinence there's a couple different times that's leaking of urine but usually it starts off with urgency but it can start as early as in the 20s but by time we reach the age of 70 
there are more people walking around with urinary incontinence issues than have the common cold. So, the, but nobody talks about it. And the, um, the pad and, and adult diaper industry is like billions and billion dollar industry a year. And people just buy these things and just kind of blame it on aging when there's so much that you can do to strengthen the pelvic floor that you don't need to even get to that at that part of your life. So, and it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to get there, but it's just very incredibly common. And it may just start off as like, all right, now you got to run to get there and you have a hard time holding it in. It can even show up in sexual function. It may be more difficulty achieving, reaching, or holding on to an orgasm. That if those muscles are weak, that can affect, affect sexual function. Also, specifically in women, if those muscles weaken, things start drooping and dropping because we're all kind of at the mercy of gravity. I mean, everything starts drooping and dropping as we get older. But what women don't particularly think of is that the bladder can actually drop, the uterus drop, and this is something that we call prolapse. So how do we strengthen our pelvic floor for men and women? How do we strengthen it? Yeah, you know, we always talk about Kegel exercises and people have heard it, but you know, I find that a majority of people don't do Kegels properly. Uh, a lot of people end up bearing down like they're trying to have a bowel movement and they think that's what that motion is, what they're doing to tighten the floor. When that's the opposite, you don't want to be bearing down or straining because that could put more stress on the pelvic floor. You want to think about tightening the pelvic muscles. Like if you were trying to hold in gas, hold in urine or hold in a bowel movement, you, you want to use those muscles to kind of like isolate and then work on doing like tightening to like a count of 10 and then relaxing or doing something called quick flicks where you tighten, tighten, tighten really quickly to a count of 10 and then repeat that for a couple more repetitions. But specifically with women, there's this misconception that Kegels are done while you're urinating. So a lot of women will be like, oh, I'm doing my Kegels. I pee and then I try to hold it in. That is not the way to do it. That's the way to potentially identify the correct muscles to use. But what happens is the bladder itself is a muscle. And if the bladder is pushing and you're tightening up your pelvic muscles, the urine's going to go where the least amount of pressure is. And if that's not out of your body, it can be back up to the kidneys. So that's not, the Kegels are not something that you should be doing while you're urinating. You can do it initially to figure out like which are the right muscles, but not something that you should be doing while you're trying to like urinate or have a bowel movement or, or any of those things. But there's some other exercises. If that's difficult, there's some ex other exercises that can help strengthen the pelvic floor. Just sitting in a chair and taking a pillow or a ball and putting it between your knees and squeezing that together will also tighten, will also work those pelvic floor muscles. And that's an easy, simple way to, uh, something that you can do at home. That's an easy and a good one I think anyone can do. So should we be thinking about our pelvic floor health now, regardless of age? You know, yeah. I, I think, you know, I think of the correlation people talk about, you know, brain health and, and, and cognitive decline, like you got to start working on it in your twenties. You can't wait till you're 50 or 60. And, and I'm assuming the same goes for our pelvic floor health, no matter what age you should start working on it. Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, it's kind of like going your whole life and never exercising. And then all of a sudden deciding at age 70 that you're going to start exercising, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to get in shape than if you had just been doing it all along. So yeah, I think everybody should learn how to, you know, do the Kegels, learn pelvic strengthening, 
and just continue it through life. So conversely, if we're talking about, you know, strengthening and tightening our pelvic floor muscles, is there such a thing as having muscles that are too tight? Yeah, definitely. There are a number of conditions that can cause actual spasming of those muscles. And when those muscles become spasmed, it can be very painful. For both men and women, it can lead to difficulty with having sex, pain with sitting. And a lot of times muscles spasm, not because they themselves are having a problem, but they're kind of the messengers where something else is going on in the body and they're spasming to protect the body. But they then actually become pathologic and that when they spasm, it decreases the blood flow to these muscles, which and triggers more pain, which tr triggers more spasms. So people can get stuck in a spasm type of scenario. So if you're experiencing pelvic pain, Kegels are not the right thing to do. Actually working with a pelvic physical therapist or a pelvic specialist is a better thing to do. But interesting enough, a majority, uh, I see a lot of pelvic pain patients and the majority of patients that I see, their pain is not necessarily originating from the pelvis, but they just happen to have a pelvic, a spasm pelvic floor. Actually, lower back conditions, hip injuries can all, all lead to a, a spasm pelvic floor, even nerve injury. If you have dis, dis, like discomfort or, or illness in those other areas, and that can actually, the pelvic floor can be where your body is showing its symptoms. Interesting. So in our everyday lives, are there things we're doing which we're unaware of that are not contributing to our overall pelvic floor well-being? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is constipation. I can't tell you how many people uh, are walking around like chronically constipated. And I think the number one cause of that is 75% Americans are chronically dehydrated. We're just not drinking enough water and our body needs water to, it's probably one of the basic things that you can do other than eating healthy and sleeping is making sure you're getting enough water in your body. And so if you're not, that can lead to constipation, which can cause more straining, which can then put more pressure on the pelvic floor and lead to a host of pelvic floor conditions. The other thing that we tend to do is not lift properly. You know, I tell patients, like, if you're lifting something heavy, blow out as you're lifting. That's why you see these weightlifters when they're, you know, these Olympic weightlifters, they're not holding their breath. They're blowing out because they're trying not to give themselves a hernia. And so our pelvic floor is basically a hole open to gravity because you have the, the pubic bone, you have the hip bones, you have the sacrum that makes up this whole bony girdle, but we don't really have anything below that's supporting us. So if you strain too much, you, things can just drop and, and we can really strain those muscles, those ligaments. And so, you know, make sure you're, you're not straining with constipation and don't lift anything too heavy. And if you're going to lift something heavy, blow out as you're lifting. So you mentioned hydration. I also think of fiber, yeah. uh, we, the constipation, fiber, the, the foods we eat. Are there specific foods that you believe are especially beneficial for our pelvic muscles, for our bladder health that we should be consuming regularly? Yeah, so that's a big thing. I and mean, we know, I mean, Hippocrates in 440 uh, you know, BC said, let food be thy medicine. So 
that's the biggest thing. Our gut is so connected to our other organs. So if your gut is not healthy, especially the pelvic floor, because the colon does come through and empties through the anus, through through the pelvic floor. So yes, if our bacteria in our gut is thrown off, that's going to affect our pelvic floor. That's going to even cause inflammation. Sometimes we can, if we get inflamed pelvic organs, that can lead to something called overactive bladder where you're like running to go to the bathroom a lot. So particularly, you know, staying away. These are like the basics that we all, I'm sure you've talked about this like 10 bazillion times in other circumstances. Just the basics of healthy living is cutting out processed foods, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables and mainly vegetables because of the fiber. A lot of the natural fibers are great. You know, if you can't get it in, then then maybe add fi- other vi- fibers. I like chia seeds and something called a Nutra. Those are two of my favorite fibers to have people add into like smoothies or into like any of their food to kind of bulk things up, you know, adding fluids. Particularly other than like general gut health and trying to, you know, help with well, fermented foods, I can't leave those out. Fermented foods are do great, not only for intestinal health, but pelvic health. They can also help prevent, especially in women, they can decrease the risk of recurrent bladder infections and recurrent vaginitis. So those you definitely want to include fermented foods in the diet every day. But there's other, there are some foods that can actually irritate the pelvic organs, specifically the bladder, because there are components of these foods that when they're processed, they go through the kidneys and then become part of the urine. So unfortunately, caffeine is really irritating to the bladder. Even coffee and teas, even decaf coffee can really irritate the bladder. So if you are somebody who's already having bladder problems, um, you know, you may want to stay away from coffee. I'm not going to tell everybody to stay away from coffee because I love myself some coffee. But, you know, I definitely would say if you're already having those, acidic foods can tend to irritate the bladder, like citrus fruits and tomatoes. You know, unfortunately, a great Italian dinner with tomato sauce and wine is probably one of the worst things if you already have bladder problems because wine, alcohol can irritate the bladder. Chocolate can irritate the bladder. So those are foods. I, like I said, I'm not going to tell people like don't ever eat those things because if you don't have a problem with your bladder, there's a lot of health benefits in those foods. But if you are somebody that's noticing some bladder issues, I would cut out citrus fruits, tomatoes, chocolate, alcohol, caffeine, and carbonated drinks. Those are probably the biggest ones. And so whether we have a bladder problem or not, I, I think... Everyone probably wants a little more control over their bladder. I, I drink a lot of water and I front load my hydration. So at the beginning of the day, I am like running to the bathroom quite a bit. Yeah. With that said, how can we all gain a bit more control over our bladder? Well, like we talked about before, the stronger our pelvic floor muscles are, that gives us the strength to kind of hold it in. But that's only going to take you so far because the bladder is basically a muscular bag that just holds the urine. And so you are going to get to a point where it's going to stretch to the point where you're full and and tells your brain, like, I got to go. Interesting enough, if you give into that sensation that you have to go, you can actually over time decrease the size of the bladder. So people who are like, I got to go and they like get up and run 
and they go and like a couple minutes later, like I got to go again and they're up. Over time, they're going to train their bladder not to hold a lot in. There's also this big misconception that holding it in is bad. It's not necessarily bad as long as you're hydrating. So as long as you're staying hydrated and an easy way to tell if you're hydrated, if your urine is clear, then you're doing a pretty good job at hydration. I mean, when you first wake up in the morning, it's going to be dark because you've been sleeping all night and you haven't been drinking. But as the day goes on, it should be clear. But for example, nurses and teachers have probably the largest bladder capacities I've ever seen. Because unfortunately, they don't have the time or the luxury to go to the bathroom whenever they feel like it. So they, over time, have trained themselves to hold more and more and really can get, they sometimes I've seen even a liter, even two liters. I mean, think of a two liter bottle. I mean, I've seen teachers and nurses sometimes with two liter size bladders, which is pretty darn a lot. You know, at the same time, going eight times in a day is actually considered normal. You know, and it all depends on how much you're drinking, your activity level, how hot it is outside, you know, how much fluid you're actually is actually making it to your bladder. But eight times is actually considered normal. One getting up one time at night, even though that may be incredibly annoying, is actually considered normal. Anything outside of that is actually something where you want to get tested and make sure there's no other underlying issues. Because sometimes urgency and we talk about we think it's just like a urinary Thing, but sometimes urgency can be a sign uh, or uh, that there's something else going on in the bladder, like stone or even a tumor. So you want to make sure there's nothing more serious going on. So th- those are just, you know, a couple of things that, that need to be looked at. Interesting. So I never thought about building up our bladder stamina, if you will. So it, if I were to summarize, does this look like, okay, I, I, I feel like I have to go, but maybe I'm going to put on a timer and time it for two minutes and then yeah. see how I do. And then next time go to three minutes and five. Yes. Is that what this That's looks like? That's a perfect, perfect way. And it's called bladder tra- retraining. And you just try to keep spacing out longer and longer. Or even sometimes just like if you get a sudden urge to go, just kind of taking a breath and like letting it pass and go, do I really have to go? Or the bladder can spasm. And sometimes that gives you this sudden urge to have to go. Sometimes just stopping and going, all right, wait a minute, let me give it a minute. And like, do I still need to go? And if you do, then you make the conscious decision to get up to go to the bathroom, not your bladder telling you. So if you keep constantly giving into your bladder telling you have to go, it's going to keep, you're going to kind of perpetuate that spasms. But, you know, some people, you know, when they're starting this retraining, the bladder will revolt and it will spasm and you may get some leakage. But over time, if you can just, yeah, if you start off five minutes, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and you just keep spacing that out, you will be able over time to hold in more and more and you'll be able to stretch that bladder out. Going back to this number eight of going eight times a day, is, is eight the gold standard? Is there a range which is dependent on how much water we're actually drinking, how active we are? You know, you're pretty active, you're drinking even more water. How do you think about the the nuance in that number? You know, I think it's also somewhat of an old number in that like doctors came up with at one point and were like, okay, eight times is normal. I don't think we need to be shooting for eight times. I think we definitely need to listen to our body's cues. But at the same time, if somebody is going eight times in a day and they go, oh my God, I'm going too much. Like, no, that's actually is considered like a normal amount. 
You know, the other thing that I see people do very often is when they're going frequently, they tend to purposely dehydrate themselves because they think, oh, I'm going too much. I'm just not going to drink. Well, it actually has the opposite effect on the body because now you become dehydrated and the urine becomes very concentrated. And within the urine is different chemicals. There's different salts. There's and, and these can become very irritating to the lining of the bladder when they're extremely concentrated. And so that irritation to the bladder can actually trigger you to go more. So sometimes the urge and the, to go frequently is a sign that you may be dehydrated and that drinking fluids and when it's, the urine's clear, it's going to be more soothing to the bladder and will actually, to a certain point, actually shut, like slow down the urgency and frequency. Interesting. So can, can you talk a little bit more about the link between our pelvic floor health and our digestion and overall gut health, if you will? Yeah. So you know, there are some inflammatory conditions of the pelvis, specifically a condition called interstitial cystitis, which was discovered in the 1800s. And to this day, we still don't necessarily know what causes it. But my belief is it really comes from gut inflammation. We know that from diets that are like high in processed foods and sugar and inflammatory foods that we can develop leaky gut where different our intestines become inflamed and now irritants can leak through the gut into our body and cause inflammation. Well, some people, their inflammation may present as arthritis. Some people, their inflammation may present even as food allergies. Some people, their inflammation will present as pelvic floor disorders. So they can develop pelvic pain, pain in the bladder, even conditions in the rectum and pain in the rectum. We also see it specifically with women, the higher risks of vaginitis and vaginal pain. And in general, we know that this is all connected to hormones. So if the intestines are stressed, that's going to affect the hormones our sex hormones are going to be diverted away from being produced and you're going to create more cortisol, which are our stress hormones. Because when we were cave people and we were walking across the savanna, we have this great sympathetic nervous system that keeps us safe. So when we see a lion and we go, oh no, there's a lion, our bodies go, this is not the ideal time to reproduce or digest. So all of our energy is taken away from digestion, is taken away from reproduction, sex hormones, and is put into running the hell away from that lion. But in today's modern age, we don't, our brains don't know the difference between we're running away from that lion and we are trying to, you know, we're under stress because of work or family or economic stressors or, or physical stressors because of illness. So all of these, so stress, it becomes very circular. So stress will then raise cortisol, which can also cause inflammation, which can affect the pelvis. But then also that inflammation can also affect the gut, worsening leaky gut. And so it becomes a very circular thing. So this is why I talk to patients specifically about the importance of body, mind, spirit when it comes to any sort of health and especially pelvic health, because we can do all the things we want to the body. But if we don't deal with the mental and spiritual aspect of things, health is like a three-legged stool. Those legs of the stool, are if they're not all even, they're just going to fall over. So... So it's very interconnected. Yeah, on that interconnectedness, can you bring it back to the gut 
and, and yeah. talk a little bit more about how our gut health impacts vaginal health? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, we've, a lot of people have heard of the gut brain connection. And so we know that 90 to 95% of your serotonin, which is your happy hormone, is made in your intestines. And we know that 85% of our immune system is made in our intestines. And so if our intestines are stressed and we, we're now susceptible to not just depression and anxiety, but more susceptible to pain conditions. And so especially people with pelvic pain conditions, they can have, they often have issues that stem from the gut. We also have found that if this is the gut is kind of thrown off and our immune system is thrown off, not only more susceptible to pelvic infections, but they are actually finding that there is a relationship between the microbiome of the vagina and sex drive, which I think is fascinating. Because so if the microbiome, the bacteria in the gut is not ideal, that in turn can throw off the microbiome of the vagina in women. Because as women, we have the rectum and the vagina are so close together, there's naturally a passage of bacteria back and forth. But they're finding that the, the bacteria in the vagina is off. That sends messages back to the brain, once again, saying, hey, this is not an ideal time to be reproducing. So the brain doesn't know the difference between trying to reproduce versus someone just wanting to have sex and having a fun time. So the brain reacts to, hey, things aren't ideal for reproduction. So we're going to dampen the sex drive, the libido, and as a potentially a sign of a bacterial infection. We also see this affecting women for infertility. Sometimes, you know, they're getting all their hormones worked up and they're going through all these infertility treatments. And a lot of times no one's like testing the microbiome of the vagina. It could just be that the shift in the bacteria of the vagina is off and therefore that's telling the brain, okay, cut, you know, shut down those hormones. It's not time to reproduce. Fascinating. And when you talk about bacteria and the microbiome being off, what are some strains that might be beneficial for vaginal health? Yeah, this is great. And I love that the fact that in the last couple of years, there's been so many different companies that have come out with like women's specific probiotics because they have found a lot of people think of lactobacillus acidophilus as what we often find in yogurt. They think of that one when, when we think of women's health, but there's other ones. There's lactobacillus gasseri, lactobacillus rhamnosus, ra lactobacillus ruteri, and lactobacillus casei. So those are all really healthy bacteria that, that help make up the vaginal biome. And one of their important role is when they live in the vagina, they protect it and prevent other bacteria and yeasts from coming and taking hold because they make hydrogen peroxide. And so from the hydrogen peroxide actually will kind of make the vagina extremely acidic, which allows these bacteria to thrive, which always has made me, I've never been able to, explain why women, the pH of the vagina is normally 3.5 to 4.5. So it's very acidic. You know, water, the pH is seven. Men, the pH of semen is anywhere from like five to eight. 
So I've never really been able to explain biologically why there would be such a difference between the pH of women and the pH of men. But I do know that I have patients, women, female patients, that unfortunately who become very susceptible to recurrent uh, vaginal infections, recurrent bladder infections. It can be sometimes from having sex with men and from the pH of the ejaculate. And so sometimes we actually have to specifically do things to acidify the vagina to get that microbiome to rebalance. So what's one thing, again, I know it's hard to generalize, but we'll try to do so for our listeners. Is there one thing that every woman out there should do that would benefit their overall vaginal health? You know, I think the biggest thing is diet. I think it all stems from the gut and that supporting gut health. So, you know, I tell people stay away from those processed foods, you know, eat healthy things that would naturally occur in, in nature because Twinkies don't grow on trees, you know, getting more probiotics into the diet, whether you have to take a probiotic or eating fermented foods um, like kimchi, sauerkraut, um, yogurt always becomes like a questionable thing. I think if you don't have a dairy problem, then yogurt's a great option. Kefir, kombucha, I think those are all great things. Um, and and then if you know if you're having problems, there are over-the-counter boric acid suppositories, which are really great to use because they can help balance the pH of the vagina, whether it's yeast or bacteria. So it really, you know, those are, are kind of a nice thing to have handy if you develop any kind of discomfort. But of course, if anything goes longer than a week, five days to a week, you want to see a doctor or healthcare practitioner. But I think, you know, the more healthy bacteria we get in our guts and the more probiotics and then kind of keep some boric acid around as a, as a side thing, that's a great option. Got it. In closing... We're going to talk about TikTok because, you know, TikTok is the source of all sorts of information these days. And, and there have been, you know, our, our team went to TikTok. Personally, I don't spend a lot of time there. I, I think I should probably spend more from what I understand. But I'm working on my videos. I'm it, trying. Well, <laughs> there, there are some pelvic floor experts out there on TikTok, TikTok saying you shouldn't squat over public toilets because it messes with your pelvic floor over time. So what's your take on 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 that TikTok take. Yes. So, you know, one of the problems is when you squat, you are activating the muscles in your pelvic floor because you're trying not to fall over. So one of the problems, if you're squatting and you're trying to pee, you're not going to empty the bladder all the way. So you're also, you're activating those muscles, which is not a problem if your muscles relax, but if you have a spasmodic pelvic floor, then, um, that's definitely not something you want to do, but it's, it's, Definitely. I mean, even if someone's trying to, because they don't want to sit on a seat and they're trying to squat and try to have bowel movement, you're just not going to empty all the way because you're activating those pelvic floor muscles, which are really just not going to let things pass. So it's not an ideal thing to be doing, but I do understand that people are very concerned about sitting actually on a public toilet seat. Um, my, you know, one of the things I would love to see someday, I mean, you... As a man, I'm sure you've lived your whole life having to lift up toilet seats. I personally don't understand why, if a woman's going to squat, why they don't lift the toilet seat up. 
because I can't tell you how many times I've been in a women's bathroom and you walk in and there's pee all over the seat because we just don't have as good an aim as you guys. So I just don't know why, especially having two uh, girls that I raised, especially when they were toddlers, having to take them into a public bathroom and the, the seats are actually disgusting. You know, I'll tell you a little secret about women's bathrooms. They're, they're really gross. So I would love to see people, if you're going to squat, lift the seat. But And if you're not, like, if you think about it, I know people are like, ew, I don't want to sit in a public toilet seat. But the part of your body that's touching the public seats are just the back of your thighs. So if you think you're in public, say you're like at a beach resort and you have a bathing suit on or short shorts and you're sitting on a you know, a, a bar stool, just as much of your skin is touching that bar stool than it is a toilet seat. But yet we're creeped out by toilet seats, you know. So now I'm either going to make people more creeped out by bar stools, but. Uh. Interesting perspective. <laughs> I, I will add that although I have not spent much time, if any, in, in uh, women's restrooms, I will say that whatever you think is bad, I guarantee the men's room is a hundred times worse. It's it's <laughs> terrible. The men, men, men are we don't have good aim. We don't, we don't have any, we got a lot of work, a lot of work to do. <laughs> Betsy, th thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. It was really enjoyable. <laughs>